0: This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. We'll get started with our, um, our panel discussion with some interesting, uh, challenging surgical cases. Um, Yes. Just to informally introduce, I'm Rajiv and I'm a Mohs surgeon at UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. On our panel, we have Dr. Seeley from Iowa, Chrissy Kerr um, locally here in San Diego, and Dr. Goldberg from uh, Houston, Texas. Also a Mohs surgeon and actually one of my personal mentors as well. Um, It's it's an honor to be able to moderate, and thank you to the organizers for inviting us all. Um, We're excited to share some interesting cases, and uh, hopefully you will find them informative. Um, No conflicts of interest uh, relevant to any of these cases. So our goals of uh, this panel discussion is to highlight some rare and complex tumors, discuss the management of melanoma in situ, discuss the management of DFSP, discuss smooth inhibitors, and also some skin substitutes. And we're gonna get started on the first case by Dr. Seeley, um, again, who is a clinical professor of dermatology at the University of Iowa.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be back. I've had the opportunity to speak to this group uh, when that group was quite tiny many years ago, and it's, it's wonderful to see the growth and development of this and the, and the contribution that you all have made uh, to our profession of dermatology. So we're going to just uh, talk about um, Lendigo Maligna. This is uh, the bane of many of us in, in dermatology because they, they, they're sometimes difficult to diagnose, and that's one of the advantages of being a in dermatology we can diagnose these, or at least suspect them, because oftentimes um, they're just passed off as a freckle or a seborrheic keratosis by others, uh, and you had a nice presentation on um, recognition of other pigmented lesions yesterday, and, it, and it's helpful. There are some different, different characteristic things. So uh, we're just going to talk about a technique that any of you could use in your practice, which is uh, stage excision with rush permanent sections. We have a number of treatment options available. Topical micamod is used off-label, uh, not as primary treatment but as an adjunct in our practice, except in rare occasions. Uh, standard surgical excision or excision followed up with post-operative using combination of uh, surgical and medical treatments. Uh, and oriented stage excision is what we do routinely in our cases, and Mohs micrographic surgery is used. Um, uh, there are a number of people in the country that are very very good at this uh, but it's very difficult to do without doing special stains or having tremendous amount of expertise and diagnosing these uh, cells, melanocytic cells with frozen sections so standard excision has been with five millimeter margins but this really has a high uh, recurrence rate of up around 20 percent or even higher and it really is a, due to the regular growth pattern sometimes skip patterns that you can see and poorly defined clinical lesions. And multiple studies have really reported the unacceptable recurrence rates. So, what are the options then to margin control? Well, Mohs micrographic surgery with central debulking, I've done many cases of that over the years, rapid, followed with rapid permanent sections, which we like to do, and Mohs micrographic surgery with amino stains, and then oriented stage excision, which we'll focus on now. And then there are techniques such as excising it in a square and then uh, sectioning the, the four quadrants or four uh, corners of the, of the specimen. So our technique is to carefully examination with a uh, local magnification and then mark out two to three millimeters beyond the clinical lesion. We excise it, we ink and mark it, the, the uh, specimen, superior, medial, margin and if the lesion more than four millimeters we may divide it into a couple of sections it's easier for the pathologist to deal with and then they do their standard sectioning so we get you have to have a good cooperative uh, dramatic pathologist to work with you to do this we get rush permit sections we deliver it uh, to them by uh, noon we will we'll get a report back early the next morning um, and the definition of a positive margin is nested or confluent single melanocytes uh, that have atypia within two millimeters of the margin. Now occasionally as you're excising these, there, it just does the mild atypia doesn't disappear. So you're not going to take off somebody's whole face for that. And that's where the use of a amicromod afterwards, in my experience, really comes in the best. But if it's obvious tumor involvement, then we'll take an additional two to three millimeter margins in that quadrant or in those locations where we'll see uh, tumors. So this would be an example of a lentigo maligna how we'd mark it, either with notches in the specimen or maybe putting a suture at 12 o'clock to help orient it. So in a series that we did, we studied it, uh, published in the uh, JAD a few years ago, um, the average number of our stages was uh, 1.8, which is about, you know, not too far off what most people do uh, for Mohs surgery for non melanoma skin cancers only 10 percent of the cases that we did required three stages and the overall tumor clearance was about 6.1 uh, millimeters mm-hmm. and uh, 8.1 for lentigo malignant melanoma. Now if we did just the standard margins only half of them would have been cleared with standard margins so clearly an advantage. In our small study we had about a 5 percent or almost 6 percent uh, recurrence rate and this recurrence took uh, some time, you know, several years typically and we then treated these in this, in this series with, excision of, with re-excision of the involved area uh, without additional recurrence. So what are the disadvantages of this method? Well, it really doesn't evaluate 100% of the margin if you're doing uh, the standard step sectioning. Uh, you do a better job with, with, uh, with Mohs, perhaps with uh, immunostains. Um, And you really have to have a a good cooperation with a dermatopathologist. You have to have several visits and you have to have a compliant patient that's willing to come back for that. But you have less dependence upon difficult melanocytic lesions and interpretation with frozen sections. It's a relatively simple procedure. And we now have longer term follow up data that's available that was recently published um, you know, you're a little bit, uh, if you get those kind of reports from a separate pathologist, you're a little, you know, it gives you a comfort zone, I think, and you're less uh, dependent upon immunostains doing this. Now, we mentioned briefly MiCOMAD and a number of studies have been uh, reported of using imicomod post-treatment, and this is where we've uh, uh, utilized this, this modality. Occasionally we use imicomod alone, if patients say has a large lesion in the eyelid, elderly, and we're not gonna do a huge surgery, or they're just not a surgery candidate, period. Uh, Susan Sweater at Oregon uh, also gave a nice uh, study uh, a couple years ago, using a amicomod for lindogoligna, both either as a primary or adjunctive therapy uh, for the incite component of melanoma, where surgery really was not uh, feasible. And the overall clearance rate in that group was 86%, uh, these were fairly large lesions and they were mixing together the uh, primary treatment and secondary uh, treatment. And it is listed as one of the options in the, uh, in the AD uh, guidelines uh, for care for lentigo, lentigo maligna. And this is the kind of response that you can get for primary treatment. If you don't get a really brisk inflammatory response, uh, then it's probably not going to resolve. It's similar to a micromod for treatment of non-melanoma skin cancers. Uh, another study here just um, uh, a year and a half ago um, where they used uh, inside to uh, make out after non-clearance with surgery. So you get to the margins where, you know, you're really not going to take half their face off or it's getting into an area where it's difficult to excise on the eyelid. And uh, um, Ellison Cohen reported uh, good results with that.
0: Great. Um. I was just curious from the panel what you guys do in your practices in treating MMIS.
2: How do we treat MMIS? Mm-hmm. We usually do most permanent sections, typically. We have 24-hour turnaround with our hospital lab because we work with a hospital, and so typically we do that. Sometimes we do a miquemot afterwards or perhaps a radiation consult based on the location.
3: A few things I do differently. Before I excise uh, lintica maligna, I always look at the lesion with an ultraviolet light. Mm-hmm. And that shines up the pigmented areas. And you can see the pigmented areas much better. Gives you better margins. Um, I excise them with Mohs surgery. And the standard way, in in one visit, I send the debulking of the lesion to pathology to rule out any invasive portion for the lentigo maligna, because that can change the diagnosis and can change the staging and the prognosis and the further treatment. Um, I the watershed moment for me came when we did the MART1 stain in my clinic. And when you look at the, sta- the sections with the MART1 stain, you can see the individual melanocytes. Uh, you cannot miss them, they, they shine up brightly. And this showed, gives us great accuracy when we look at the sections. And so we use the MART1 stain. You need to have a good technician who can cut them right and can stain them right. But once you get over the initial, uh, that initial problem, it's very easy. We do probably one or two a week. Um, Remember that lentigo maligna is a relatively benign lesion from the point of view that once you've sent the debulking away, the rest is in situ melanoma that never really metastasizes so that if you do get a, a recurrence of your tumor, you can excise it immediately and the patient is really not in danger.
0: Yeah, at, um, I'm at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And again, we also do uh, Mart 1 immunostains um, for Mohs micrographic surgery. Um, everything's done in one day, which the patients appreciate. A lot of our patients are coming two to three hours away to get this treatment since we're you know being an academic institution that offers this um, in our region. Um, and, and again, I, we do exact pr- pr- um, pretty much similar, where we always send the center debulk for permanent section processing to ensure there's no invasive component that may have been missed on that sampling biopsy. That's a, that's a big thing to remember, you know, some of these lesions are three by four centimeters and you send a three millimeter biopsy, it's not necessarily representative of the entire lesion. There's always a risk for an invasive component and that's where sending that center um, is incredibly important to ensure that there's not an invasive disease as well. And just another comment um, that Dr. Seeley mentioned, um, we agree completely in terms of using a amicomod almost as an adjuvant field therapy, like we do sometimes when we'll see SCCIS at the margins that you're never gonna clear surgically. Um, Similar, you see this atypical melanocytic hyperplasia at the periphery, and that's a perfect role for a micromod, but we really don't use it as primary therapy unless the patient, again, is not a surgical candidate. Oftentimes we'll have younger patients, 30s, 40s, 50s with MIS, and they're wanting to avoid surgery. We do everything possible to push surgery for them because that is still gonna be their best outcome long-term you don't want to give it five, 10, 15, 30 years for it to recur. Um, whereas someone who's <laughs> elderly, 90, 95, and can not tolerate surgery, that's probably a better role for amicomod uh, as primary therapy. But in most patients, surgery is probably um, advocated for, for first-line
1: treatment. Yeah, I can't overemphasize the importance of getting a, 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 the bulk of the tumor section because the 10% or more of them will have evidence of invasive melanoma that then would alter your uh, approach to treatment. And um, the uh, Mart1 stain and other stains are very, very useful. Just you need to be doing them on a regular basis like these gentlemen are doing it twice a week. And we don't do them that often uh, uh, where we are. So really, you have to be good at it to to do it just like anything else. Great. I think we can,
0: I think you're next.
1: Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about a technique that I've really found useful in my practice in treating wounds that are difficult to heal where you get exposed uh, exposed cartilage. And here's an example of a, of a patient on the left that we excised uh, a basal cell carcinoma. You can see it's down to involved uh, to the edge of, of, into the perichondrium and exposed cartilage. And there are a whole host of treatments you could do. I'm sure our panel members could give you a dozen different uh, approaches, full thickness skin grafting, a flap, a uh, variety of things, but Oftentimes these patients are not great candidates for that. And I found a technique that's very useful uh, to allow these to heal uh, by second intention. And we use this uh, porcine graft. It's not really porcine skin. It's come from the intestinal wall, but it's a, a, a material um, that you can buy commercially. And this is one brand. There are several other ones available. And sutured in place, as you see in the right, with absorbable sutures, usually 5 or 6 old plain gut sutures. Uh, Put a dressing on, leave the dressing on for a week, come back, don't look very pretty, doesn't look very pretty as you see on the left, but a week later, it's dried up, and eventually this drops off, and this is the kind of healing you can get. I've treated huge areas on the ears doing that. Sometimes you have patients that you're doing surgery on, a bigger lesion, and they bleed from every capillary. Uh, This is something you can use. Sometimes those difficult leg wounds uh, can be difficult to heal sometimes too. Uh, that is developed in, in burn patients, other patients, but it's a nice modality. Um, there is a CPT code for doing it. You just have to document how the graft was fixated, whether it's with sutures or with uh, Steri-Script or whatever. And, uh, and so you can do it up to 25 centimeters. So it's something useful, simple and easy, and will allow healing of wounds like this that... Uh, Otherwise, would require much more extensive surgery and very useful, especially in the elderly patients.
0: Great, does anyone else in the panel use porcine We do, we
2: use the easyderm derm product. And we've been using it more and more on um, lower leg, pretibial area that's difficult to close, especially in our elderly patients where it's not gonna heal very well anyways, and that saves them from having two wounds from a skin graft, and it does heal over time. I mean, leg wounds are gonna take a long time anyways, and this is just an easy way to get that secondary intention, granulation.
3: So I've changed my technique a little bit here and what I do is I put on a split thickness skin graft and uh, in a special way I use a flexible blade, either the derma blade or my preference the regular razor blade. You can use any type of razor blade but the Poisona one is a medical grade one so we use those. And then I take the graft from the hair bearing area of the temporal or parietal scalp. It's hair-bearing, so it's protected from the sun. It's fresh skin. You can take off a split-thickness graft that's less than a millimeter in thickness. With practice, you get very good. I use the hair-bearing skin because you don't take off the hair follicles. The hair follicles stay on the scalp and the hair grows back out after you've taken off the graft. And so within a week you have a totally healed wound and within two or three weeks the patient cannot even find where that wound was except for the fact that in that area the hairs are still growing out and they thin. These grafts are wonderful in that you can put them on sp- thin lesions like Roger showed us on the, on the uh, in his slide. And within a week that wound heals. I've got an almost 100% take rate of the grafts because the skin is so thin, and the metabolic requirements for that graft are so low that they're always taken. They look very nice afterwards. So, I recommend to you uh, split thickness grafts taken with a handheld flexible razor from the hair bearing area, and it will change the way you practice uh, most
0: surgery. So um, we're similar to Dr. Sealy at UT Southwestern. Our fellow is actually publishing a case of 130 patients treated with porcelain xenograft in all different locations. We really like it for the ear, like Dr. Sealy has mentioned. I think um, it helps prevent that chondritis sometimes you can get with exposed cartilage um, and again, prevents a donor site um, from a split-thickness or a full-thickness skin graft. We also use it a lot for really large scalp lesions. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and we even do it where, you know, if we're treating um, acne, keloidalis nuque on the occipital scalp, we'll excise that to periosteum. Um, sometimes these lesions are eight by 10 centimeters in size. We'll throw a porcine xenograft on it. They heal wonderfully um, with very, very excellent results. Patients are pleased. It is essentially secondary intention healing, our thought process is that it kind of speeds up healing, so maybe cuts it down by 30 to 40%. And it also helps decrease the, the degree of contracture you would normally get if you didn't throw in a, a porcine xenograft. So I think that's helpful in certain areas. Um, we've been used it on small um, defects on the nasal ala, um, ear, um, et cetera. And, and in our practice, it's actually replaced the, sp- the graft um, completely uh, just because we've been able to use it on such large extensive areas with excellent results.
1: And you can use it to, in a way to prep a wound for other types of grafting too, because sometimes it will, uh, if it doesn't allow it to heal completely, you'll get a nice bed that you could put another graft on if you needed to at a later time. So we have a few questions now. Um, treatment uh, options for lindicum include topical I uh, am I supposed to hit the button to start the voting here? Um, surgical excision, oriented stage excision, Mohs micrographic surgery, or all of the above. Okay. Um, actually, this is correct. All of the above. Uh, it's an option. Um, again, we would use the um, Omicromod as a primary treatment only in the uh, patients that were not surgical candidates. Omicromod is most useful for primary treatment or adjunct treatment. Xenograph heals the wound as a primary pair, or B allows a secondary intention healing.
0: on to the second case. This is an 82-year-old female, um, uh, Hispanic female, referred for the treatment of a basal cell carcinoma on the right nasal sidewall. The initial pathology was just documented as being nodular basal cell. Um, she came to us uh, f- from an outside in, uh, facility and um, with, you know, just a pathology report. Her reported medical history was non-significant per her. Um, no meds, nothing. Uh, but, of course, it's that's never the case. So this is our first stage of Mohs surgery. Um, Not a pretty tumor. Um, Going on to higher power, you see this infiltrative strands of basal cell, some micronodular um, basal cell as well. Um, And as we go deeper again, you'll see these infiltrative strands. Um, And here's another closer up image. So not a very pretty tumor on your first stage. But interestingly, we also started to see keratinization within the basal cell island. So this was not your run-of-the-mill nodular basal cell. This was behaving much more aggressively and even had some evidence of squamous differentiation. And that's where this keratinization within the basal cell islands um, represents uh, the keratinization. So after the fourth stage of Mohs surgery, um, unfortunately she was still positive at the nasal perichondrium. She was referred to ENT for bony resection, which fortunately was negative um, and uh, uh, was repaired with a paramedian four flap. When I was speaking to the referring provider um, uh, about the, the, the fact that we had to refer her to ENT for further resection, then we got a little bit more history. Um, she presented to him three months prior, looking like this, uh, multiple lesions, um, and she was started on uh, uh, um and within three months, she these lesions all resolved, but if you notice, um, a new one developed on the right nasal sidewall. So this is just a span of three months with his MotoGib, a very um, impressive response to his MotoGib uh, that you don't always see, but she responded very well. However, she developed a new skin cancer. Looking back at this image, um, and this is how she presented us, you see a, a, a some degree of ectropia on the left lower lid as well that, <clears throat> is likely from that previous tumor that um, um, resolved. And also looking at a right nasal ala, there is this scar component there as well. Now, just just be mindful, this is our clinical image, and if you look at the size of the defect, obviously the clinical image and, and what we're seeing clinically is very deceiving compared to what, where the tumor actually um, extended to. So again, clinical lesion, Mohs defect, never would have we really truly suspected that that the lesion on the left would have led to something like this on the right, especially without having that history. So the question that we had when we saw this patient, why did this basal cell develop during vismo therapy while all of her other basal cells seem to have clinically resolved? And we had some thoughts. Was it because it was an in infiltrated basal cells? Do infiltrated basal cells not respond the same way as nodular and superficial basal cells um, with VSMO therapy? Or did this basal cell develop resistance to vismo? Or was it because this basal cell underwent some squamous differentiation, decreasing the efficacy of the vismo? Um, there's been no true reports to say infiltrated basal cell does not re- uh, respond to vismo after we did some research. Um, but we, we did some additional research on vismo resistance. So about 20 patients, 20% of patients actually develop some degree of resistance by year one of use. Um, and tumors that regrow may be the same subtype or a different subtype. And there are these hypotheses um, in terms of why this resistance develops. Did, they, did the tumors develop a smoothened mutation, or were there activating mutations in the pathway downstream that led to the reactivation and the recurrence? There have been two recent studies um, that kind of sequenced genes from spontaneous basal cells, basal cells resistant to Vismo, and basal cells in B, uh, basal cell Neva syndrome. And up to a third of untreated basal cells actually were found to have a smoothened mutation. Two thirds of basal cells that were resistant to vismo were found to have a smoothened re- uh, mutation. So there are basal cells that have some mutations that will not respond to vismo, And it could be a primary resistance, meaning they never respond to the vismo, or they develop a secondary resistance where initially they respond to vismo, and then at some point in time they stop responding. Now, the thought was, what can we do to maybe add on to the current Vismo therapy? Would another smoothen inhibitor, now that we have a few more, um, in combination with Vismo help? Probably not, because because the, um, the resistant mechanisms are all the same um, with all the smoothen inhibitors. Now, the potential that's... Um, up and coming is adding another agent downstream through the Sonic Hedgehog pathway. Um, And that could be targeting SCUFU or or GLEE. And this is a potential. It's similar to the whole concept of using a BRAF inhibitor in combination with a MEK inhibitor since they kind of work on two different um, portions of the pathway. So, You know, we thought it's probably a combination of both of these. That basal cell in the right nasal sidewall developed some degree of resistance, but also the basal cell underwent some squamous differentiation, decreasing the VISMO's efficacy. Now, looking in the literature, there have been actually more and more cases being reported on this. This is two cases um, published in JAMA Derm in 2013 about new onset KAs developing after (coughs) VISMO therapy. Here's another patient, um, initially, uh, if, you, if you look at the pathology um, at the top of the image, um, clear-cut basal cell, this is what the initial pathology and biopsy showed. Um, after um, treatment with vismo, re biopsy the exact same site showed actually development of squamous cell within that site, so it's an important consideration. So. Does VSMO promote the growth of a population of less differentiated tumor cells within basal cells that favors squamous differentiation? Does VSMO promote de-differentiation of basal cell into squamous cell? Um, Or does uh, VSMO select for already present squamous cell to kind of flourish once the basal cell is treated? So these are all questions that this case and these other cases have um, um, uh, arisen. This is another case published in New England Journal. Um, That was about a seven centimeter basal cell Um, um, that responded incredibly well with Vismo, as you can see. This was the initial um, skin tumor pathology, your classic basal cell. This was actually a lymph node that was positive for basal cell. Now, even though the clinical image responded very well, repeat biopsy of a lymph node actually showed squamous cell. So there are squamous changes that are occurring in basal cell, um, especially in those that are getting this resistance. Now, squamous changes in basal cells. The New England Journal cases found a high level of GLEE, mRNA in the recurrence, suggesting that the hedgehog pathway that remains important for the tumor survival. And other studies have um, found an upregulation of RASC and MAP kinase pathways in the resistance of basal cell or squamous cells that occur in the setting of vismo. So these tumors are likely to be more invasive with a much higher metastatic rate as well. Um, The take-home point is... Vismo, even if you're on it, you have to be aware that they could be developing squamous cells while on vismo therapy. Um, and it could be that the initial basal cells that were responding could essentially regrow back as squamous cells. And that's an indication that you should biopsy and pot- uh, potentially um, um, uh, advocate for more definitive therapy. Um, the the, the um, Again, teaching points, I'll just go through the slides and being mindful of time. Patients on Vismo require frequent monitoring. So if you have any patient who's on Vismo, you should be seeing them our protocol is every three months at minimum, even if they're stable on their medication, just to detect new lesions as early as possible, um, both in the area that you're treating uh, for the Vismo and also again anywhere else that a new lesion or a new Ka or squamous cell could develop. Um, biopsy portions of the tumor that are not responding like other parts may be responding again you may see more of a squamous differentiation developing which means that it's not never going to respond to the vismo. and then again biopsy if all of a sudden that tumor that was initially responding now regrows back or stops responding again there could be some development of resistance as well so questions for the panel are um, how frequently are you using visMO? Um, any other pearls for managing patients on Vismo
1: as well. I'm not using it very often, uh, but uh, uh, the small number of metastatic uh, basal cell carcinomas or the super aggressive ones have been uh, those that whether well, some squamous differentiation and Dr. Mose used to call those basal squamous or metatypical whatever. But uh, I think that uh, that may be a factor there. That. Tumor may have had some squamous differentiation to begin with. Visbo is not very good for for squamous cell carcinomas. Another thing is another hedgehog inhibitor that's not really approved for that use is Itraconazole. Dr. Scott Dinehart has talked about using that as an adjunct. And so perhaps in some of these cases, that might be something to be considered. Also in the patient that cannot tolerate the side effects and you have to use intermittent treatment, uh, considering the use of that. Uh, on the time that you have them off the, the bisma.
3: It was a great exposition, thank you. I have nothing to add except to say that most of my bisma I use on the basal cell nebus syndrome patients and for them it's been a miracle drug and changed their whole world. Um, in those patients I don't see the squamous differentiation occurring, but they're all younger patients and so they probably haven't had the time for squamous to develop on them.
1: Yeah, it is very helpful in those patients. I have mm-hmm. about six patients uh, on that, uh, and I and I do it as an off-label uh, once a week uh, uh, regimen.
2: We don't use the VISMO that Correction, much.
1: Correction, no, a once a month, one week a month <laughs> regimen.
2: We've all, we've, we were, uh, Dr. Soon at our institution had done it, was enrolled in a study, enrolling patients in a study to use it as an adjuvant therapy to Mose to shrink the tumor possibly prior to Mose, but that's really the main area we've used it in.
0: Yeah. Um, I, think, I think the biggest issue with BISMO is tolerability, um, the muscle cramps, the dysgeusia, the difficult taste, the alopecia. I think it becomes very intolerable. There are new regimens, like Dr. Sealy was mentioning, where people are altering the dosing. It's not 150 milligrams once a day. They're doing it for a week at a time per month or even every other day. Um, and I think uh, over the next few years, we'll hear more alternative dosing patterns to kind of improve tolerability of the medication that is unfortunately pretty difficult to tolerate. Vismo unfortunately also in these kind of more challenging aggressive advanced basal cell cases are, unfortunately it's not definitive therapy. So from my perspective, especially from this case and some other cases we've dealt with, um, we're just sometimes waiting for Vismo to stop working. For at some point we fear that it's just not gonna have that same response. So if some of these patients do really well for six, nine, 12 months, even up to two years, Then at some point something happens where they develop this secondary resistance and stop responding. And I think that's that's something that I always keep in the back of your head that vismo, in my opinion, is not a lifelong therapy, unfortunately, for these more advanced cases. Um, and more definitive therapy would be indicated, such as adjuvant, um, uh, or, or in a neoadjuvant sur- um, setting where we then proceed with surgery um, after it's potentially Shrunk down, or um, adjuvant uh, radiation um, thereafter. So at some point, they can stop the vismo.
2: Do they get rebound? Have you seen that after they stop the vismo? Do they, you know, rebound like with psoriatane? I know some people after they stop it, their squames can flare. I didn't know if that was the same with. Vismo. I think they, I, I think they time.
0: grow back pretty quickly, yeah. similar to where they presented with. Unfortunately, great. We can move on to the next case. Um, Christy will be speaking on a challenging DFSP case. Thank you.
2: Thank you. So Dr. Goldberg did a great job of covering kind of the basics of DFSP. so I'm going to talk about a challenging case that we had at Scripps Clinic a couple years ago. And Scripps Clinic is here in San Diego, so I'm lucky enough to have a short commute to this conference today. So... So just to recap, DFSP is an uncommon tumor. It makes up about 0.1% of all tumors. Um, it's a low-grade soft t- tissue tumor arising from the dermis. They tend to be slow-growing, but they can exceed, extend deep and wide. Most occur about 45% on the trunk. Extremities makes up about 24%, and the head and neck about 18%. It does have a low risk for metastasis, but it has a high risk for local recurrence if surgically all the margins are not examined at the time of excision. So this particular case is a young woman, she's 27 years old, and she presented to us, our institution, in January of 2014, so this was about three years ago. But previous to that, in August of 2013, she had noticed a discoloration on her temple, and then she felt like it was a little mass underneath there, so she went to the dermatologist, and in 20, I think she saw a derm PA here in San Diego, And in September of 2013, a shave biopsy was performed, and it showed more of a vascular growth of a perivascular mixed lymphocytosis, but no DFSP was identified at that time. The lesion did bleed quite a bit, so for definitive uh, treatment, she was referred to plastics for excision. A plastic surgeon, being it was on her face, understandable, and the plastic surgeon excised it, and I'll kind of go over the uh, closure, and PATH at that point after the excision showed DFSP in all sections and in the subcutaneous and skeletal muscle. So when she presented to us, she had a scar here back in the hair. So this area here is where her initial biopsy was and the plastic surgeon in order to try and avoid a scar here on this, she's really beautiful, uh, young woman's face had made an incision here and then tunneled under to try and remove the mass from below, not knowing that it was a DFSP at the time, under the impression it was a vascular lesion. So that kind of changed the way we had to treat it. She did have a CT in September and there was no bony involvement. She did have a PET-CT, which showed just enhancement at the site. And then after she saw us, she had, had an MRI which showed a seven centimeter vertically and anterior and posterior vertical uh, lesion so it was a seven by seven centimeter lesion we wanted to try and decrease the defect on this lady's face so we sent her to oncology and they started her on gleevac or matinib four hundred two 400 <coughs> two times a day for eight weeks trying to shrink the tumor prior to surgery in hopes that it would about six weeks in she had severe neutropenia and her white count dropped to 1.4 so she was stopped at that point for about a week and then she restarted and she finished the eight-week course without any incidents. And she felt clinically like that had shrunk the tumor. She felt like it was smaller. And the MRI did show that there was a decrease in the size when she had the additional MRI in April. So in May, we decided to do some scouting biopsies in preparation for her surgery in June. She's a teacher, so she was trying to put this off till summer, so that's why we had a little bit of, of time to work with. And we did some scouting punch biopsies, about 4 to 5 millimeters, and trying to define where the DFSP was going to be after the GLEVAC. And the two in the center were positive. 3 o'clock was positive. 12 o'clock was positive. And then this was the 10 o'clock position. So all these were positive for DFSP. So we knew it was going to be large, despite the imatinib. And at our institution, we do Mohs permanent sections for this. We have a lab that can turn it around in 24 hours and do the special stains that we need to do. Um, just to recap, modified Mohs is a little bit different. It's paraffin sections versus frozen sections. It's processed in 24 to 48 hours and they can do immunostains if you can't do that in your lab. It's, same as, it's the same as Mohs frozen section is, is it's inked and mapped in the same way. So you can track the lesion and all margins are examined. So. So this was her Mohs permanent layer one, and you can see we are deep and wide in that area, right on the temple. And this was her Mohs map after Mohs layer one, and you can see that she's positive deep and at the peripheral, and then at like the seven, eight o'clock position. And so a day later, that's usually how it works, about 24 hours later, after we've gotten the results back, we bring them back, and we might use an Derm to cover during that time while we're waiting for repair in between layers. And this was her modified Mosler layer 2. You can see it moved more anterior, and we're getting deeper as DFSP can. And she was still positive up at that top quadrant. And then this is Mosler layer 3. You can see this is her eye. This is in the OR. Um, she, This is her eye here. And you can see we're getting down to periosteum there and then all the muscle involved. So despite the amatinib, it still ended up being a... Final defect size of 95 by 70 millimeters, which is quite large. She was repaired with a full thickness skin graft as the plastic surgeon did not want to move more tissue around because of the risk of recurrence. We didn't want to, you know, kind of muddy the waters with that. So she was repaired with a full thickness skin graft taken from her abdomen in July. And then in August, she looked like this. She heals really well. And post-operatively, we did send her for a consult for XRT for radiation, just because that initial excision, there was the risk of seeding of the tumor because it was moved. We did send her for an XRT consult. We didn't push it too much, but we thought it was appropriate to have her talk to the radonk people. She declined due to the fact that she's young, and that put her at high risk for other malignancies later. And also, it would destroy the hair in the brow and this whole area, and she has beautiful long red hair. I understand that. And then also, it would also make any future revisions more difficult after the radiation. So at this point, she said no. And we were okay with that. Six months later, she had the skin graft excised, and the tissue was brought together. After that time, it had time to stretch. And we, the plastic surgeon did 19 additional biopsies from the periphery, and all of them were clear at that time. So that was good. And my mom and I actually ran into her in the grocery about three months ago, and we were chit-chatting with her, and then after we left, I said to my mom, did you notice anything about that that girl? She goes, no, she's really pretty. So she does look really good now, so my mom didn't even detect that she had had anything because her hair covers a lot of it, so I was happy from that aspect because she is really young. Her outcome in the future, she has not had any recurrences yet. We know she is at high risk. She's seen about every four to six months. We did just recently do some imaging on her by an MRI, and she did not have any DFSP, but she did have a meningioma, which now she's being followed for. So, uh, she is at high risk for local recurrence. The head and neck has a high recurrence site, even though it only makes up 18% of the tumors. The original tumors that accounts for 36% of the recurrences. The extent of the original tumor is deep and wide. She did have a baby. She went on to have a baby, and no regrowth at that point. There is some thought that maybe there's an estrogen receptor component to these, so we kept a close eye on her during that time. Our institution does quite a few DFSPs. I mean, these are rare tumors, so you don't run across them every day. In 2008, one of our fellows, uh, Dr. Hancock's and Dr. Greenway, who's our primary surgeon, published a a paper in the Journal of Derm Surgery, and at that point, we had 25 patients treated with modified Mohs over 19 years, and we had no recurrences after 101 months follow-up, um, at this point, we're getting ready to update that paper, and I think we have 43 cases total. We've had one recurrence that was 17 years out, and it was local and it was excised, and that was three years ago, and he has not recurred. The benefit of the modified Mohs over standard or Mohs in general brings the uh, defects down. The standard wide local excision margin for these tumors is about two and a half to three centimeters, and on an area like the head and face, that would be really difficult due to the anatomic restrictions. So. All DFSP cases are challenging, but for us this was a particularly challenging, interesting one that um, it really it really brought us, you know to a point where we had to utilize all of our different modalities within our institution. And these are my references. Any Questions, thoughts from the panel about DFS. Very nice, case.
1: very well done. And this is the technique we use to treat these. Uh, also, it's a modified Mose with uh, permanent sections, sometimes special stains along with that. Um, but one point I want to make to, to everyone is that dermatofibromas typically don't occur on the head and neck. They can, uh, but the ones that I've seen typically have been followed for quite a long time, thinking they were dermatofibroma. One. Was uh, actually followed by a dermatologist, and the lesion had been frozen and injected, and it took off almost uh, two thirds of this uh, woman's scalp when we were done. And also, if you, in you're examining a dermatofibroma or what looks like clinically a dermatofibroma, might have that positive pinch sign and so forth. Feel for any ledge around there. That's where typically you will uh, detect that this is DFSP. And if you get a path report back as just as dermatofibroma, and you suspect that. I uh, ask them to take another look, maybe do a deeper biopsy or do, do, do the special stains.
3: <clears throat> I think you did wonderful work, excellent. Oh,
0: thank you. Yeah. Um, at UT Southwestern we actually do formal, um, we do Mohs micrograph surgery where we do it by frozen section. Um, the benefit in our perspective is we're able to do it the same day again for the patient um, the one thing about formalin processing is there's always some shrinkage of the tissue that you can get, so there's always this concern. Just be mindful of that you're getting a false positive deep margin because as as the tissue sits in formalin, there is a degree of contracture that occurs. Um, whereas if you do frozen section, it just can sit and freeze, and you can get the thinnest true margin. Um, and uh, again. If these tumors are so large, sometimes you you're, you have limited options. Another comment to make on neoadjuvant therapies in general, um, something just to be keep in mind is there's always a risk uh, or this theoretical risk that the tumor does not necessarily shrink in a contiguous pattern. There's always this concern that maybe by using neoadjuvant therapy, both with uh, vismodegib or Matinib or anything, that maybe the tumor is not shrinking in continuous pattern, it could create skip lesions. The only reason I mention this is in clinical practice, oftentimes, you know, um, we get asked a question, hey, should I be using topical FEDEX for six six uh, months and then, or, or six weeks and then biopsy, whatever's left to be over? I think the challenge from a Moe's perspective is that it could create skip lesions where when we go ahead and do Mose. Um, We're not necessarily able to truly um, accurately detect the peripheral margin. And maybe two millimeters uh, beyond, there is tumor left behind. So um, from a topical perspective, my point is um, I would recommend sending the patient directly to the surgeon, allowing the surgeon to assess when's um, the appropriate time to do any field therapy. And we normally reserve field therapy postoperatively once the tumor has been clear, once the invasive component of the tumor has been clear. Um, such as invasive squamous. <clears throat> Great. I think Dr. Seele, you're up.
1: Okay, this is a seventy-eight-year-old, uh, uh, longtime patient of mine that uh, had been seen elsewhere um, uh, when he was uh, visiting, staying the winter in Florida, and they excised what was told us squamous cell carcinoma, and did a flap on him and, and then he developed this ulceration in the area. Also of importance is that he has a CLL that is um, uh, stable. So uh, we started excising it and lo and behold it just kept going and going and the thing that was interesting histologically is that this was a poorly differentiated tumor that was deeply invasive and it looked like here that there was some perineural involvement. And in fact, we did some special stains and it was really quite a bit around the, uh, the nerves. And these are the ones that tend to be much more aggressive. They tend to uh, uh, spread farther. And these are the ones typically that will uh, will miss and get a recurrence with uh, after most. So if I have one that has uh, any evidence of uh, even inflammation around the nerves I will oftentimes get some special stains on that to see if there's any perineural involvement <clears throat> and ultimately this was the uh, size of this uh, gentleman's defect again we did get clearance at that point he's done okay so far but uh, it's very difficult to read the sections because he's got these lymphocytes all over the place with his uh, CLL and that can be confusing and so the special stains are very useful for that now the patients again that uh, uh, will get perineural involvement um, even if you get it clear you may want to consider um, uh, those patients for this patient is too old and other issues to do a sentinel node biopsy. Uh, the other uh, issue is, is that uh, um, they are much more likely to have uh, recurrence and so field therapy with radiation in that drainage field is something that's considered uh, uh, useful also. Comments?
3: That's a large lesion. I detest the days I get those because I hate destroying my patients, destroying their looks, destroying their personality, but that's the way it is. Uh, the closure for that needs to be a forehead flap that gets folded over underneath. Um, I do them or we send them out. Um, you can do either in your practice.
1: The plan on this patient is uh, uh, we've let that area heal by second tense because he's had uh, all these issues, you only get one chance to do a forehead flap, and so because of his other issues, we've delayed that, uh, and uh, we're going to wait at least six months without any evidence of recurrence before they'll do the, uh, do the forehead flap.
0: Yeah, I think these squims can be really challenging. What, one thing that we will do is sometimes um, with frozen section, I just don't feel accurately um, describing the caliber of nerves that are involved with the squamous cell. So I will send my Mohs block for permanent section and have um, have the dermatopathologist actually comment on the size of the nerves. And that's what guides me in terms of sending a patient for adjuvant radiation or not. Um, NCCN guidelines kind of advocate for adjuvant radiation if the caliber of nerves are greater than 0.1 millimeters. And that additional kind of report from the dermatopathologist is very helpful for us in terms of guiding the patient and kind of getting um, more of a multidisciplinary care team involved.
2: Yeah, we send it for, if it's suspicious, even for perineural, we'll send it to pathology for permanent sections for a consult to see if it is, and then send them for a consult for radiation post-op.
3: I do not send my patients for radiation therapy. I get them out. I hope the nerves are gone, and usually they are gone, and I leave it at that.
0: All right. This is our last case. Um, with the interest of time, so we have enough time for questions, I'll kind of go through this pretty quickly. This a gentleman referred to us. Um, uh, he came three hours away, um, looks like a subtle papule on his right upper cutaneous lip, but when you actually were palpate, it's full thickness induration duration of his upper lip. The pathology report actually just came back as uh, well-differentiated squamous cell, but clearly it just was not a, a deep enough biopsy to sample everything. Um, we kind of prepared the patient, although he was kind of shocked when we told him his entire upper lip was most likely to be gone based on what I was palpating preoperatively. We kind of gave him the option to think about it and reschedule. He came again from ways away and, uh, with his family. His daughter took day off, so we proceeded with surgery. So um, the Mohs bulk again, showed these atypical um, proliferation of keratinocytes, kind of the papillary dermis, um, kind of you know your typical well differentiated squamous cell. And here's this on higher power, kind of what you would expect to see. Um, However, on on the periphery, we also started seeing these thin tumor strands kind of extending from the superficial to deep dermis. And here's um, another higher power view, very subtle thin strands, Um, almost like tadpole-like structure or two to three cells wide. As we went to the second stage, um, you can see the tumor wrapping around nerves very, very obviously. This is one of those tumors that you can kind of see on low power, on like 2X, you see the perineural invasion. These are large nerves um, in the upper cutaneous lip. And it is, um, the, the PNI is actually into the subcutaneous fat. Here's additional images um, of, of um, some PNI. And this is again, very clear cut. Sometimes we're kind of fishing and and looking at the the frozen section slides very closely. This again, it it just screams out at you in terms of it wrapping around the nerves. And this is him after tumor resection. Uh, It was four stages of most surgery. Um, We achieved clear margins um, and he actually was repaired with a free flap and he had surprisingly the best free flap I've ever (coughs) seen with an excellent cosmetic result. Um, But again, just just to be mindful, you know, the tumor extended far beyond what was clinically apparent and even further beyond the induration that we palpated preoperatively. Um, we did send and an, um, our Mohs d bulk for permanent section processing just because the entire tumor didn't seem to line up. There were these compo- areas of the, the eights buccal keratinacetic um, proliferations, classic for squamous cell, but then we also saw these tiny little strains of tumor at the periphery as well. Um, that you see here. Um, So again, it it almost seemed like it was not just one tumor. And pretty much after um, consultation with their dermatopathologist, um, the diagnosis was Mm -hmm. that this was a microcystic uh, naxal carcinoma with some focus of uh, focal squamous cell carcinoma. So it was essentially a collision tumor of both Mm -hmm. tumors, um, which which we were not surprised about. And this is what's helpful for us in terms of sending our Moe's um, frozen sections for permanent section to kind of get more, um, a better description of what we're seeing, quantifying the perineural invasion that's involved. And again, things are not always as they seem. The uh, first appearance can deceive many as it deceived us. Now, Max, just briefly, to go over, it's a malignant tumor with pilar and acrine differentiation. It typically presents as an indurated, slow-growing um, plaque on the face. Um, histologically, um, can represent Uh, or resemble uh, a desmylopostic tricoep, morphoiform basal cell, syringoma, um, potentially an SCC. There's no great reliable immunostain to differentiate these. Um, So it's oftentimes in clinical context. Um, um, And MACs can be locally aggressive with high local recurrence rates um, with with, uh, excision. Fortunately, um, however, they have a low metastatic potential. There's only been four cases of metastasis to regional nodes, um, and only three cases of distant meds, and one case of death due to metastasis. Now, the challenge we had was, you know, this there was clearly squamous cell, but they also had MAC. The PNI that was involved was pretty extensive. Um, We thought, um, and and the PNI, I I think it was 0.4 millimeters in size, so really large caliber nerves. we thought adjuvant radiation would be helpful to prevent recurrence in this setting. Um, the question we had for the radiation oncologist and our dermatopathologist was, do we also radiate the nodes? Again, MACs don't tend to go to nodes, but aggressive squamous cells do. Um, so that, that was our challenge. Um, after lengthy discussion kind of in a multi multidisciplinary board, it was decided that we should irradiate the node, um, lymph node basins as well just to ensure that um, none of, no squamous cell component um, did go. Now MACs tend to have PNI, so we often see that, but given the atypical keratinocytes, um, it was just a, a kind of a team decision to actually send him for radiation to his nose as well. So Mohs surgery for MAC is a treatment of choice. Um, um, the reports show about a zero to 12% recurrence, and, and this is much better, much greater than just local excision alone, where you can see up to 60% recurrence rates. The most defects um, t- tend to be <clears throat> four times larger than what you clinically see as the tumor. Um, in regards to uh, Max and the role of adjuvant RT, um, not much in the literature. This is a retrospective study of 16 cases treated with my local excision and adjuvant radiation to the tumor bed. Um, and um, 10 out of 12 who had positive margins didn't recur within five years of getting radiation. So radiation is... Um, it is very helpful in these tumors if local um, excision can't kind of um, achieve clear margins. Um, again, uh, kind of teaching codes from this case from our perspective um, have a high index of suspicion if tumors do not seem compatible with the initial biopsy report. Uh, most surgery is the standard of care for these microcystic adenoxyl carcinomas, um, and the role of radiation. Um, as treatment or in terms of adjuvant setting is not well-defined given the limited literature on it, but we do find it to be helpful in certain cases. Any other comments from the panel on back? Yeah, or? Yeah,
1: interesting case. Um, the, the point that I want to make though is that if you have a patient that has had, that you've done a skin cancer removal or someone else and they came in six months to a year later and complained that there's pain. Uh, in that area. Uh, typically, scars improve with time and the pain diminishes uh, unless they're developing a keloid or something. And so uh, then you need to reassess it, follow carefully, consider rebiopsy because those are the ones oftentimes that will have uh, perineural involvement. And those are cases that I've seen, oftentimes that was the case.
3: Okay. This case brings up a very interesting feature that I come across all day, and I'm sure you do, and that is. Is what you're seeing on the surface actually what's going on underneath the surface? So here's a patient who had a completely normal surface except for some hardness, and you don't know what's going on. And so it brings up the question of when do you biopsy to make sure there's nothing going on and when, you don't, and when don't you biopsy? And my uh, rule that I usually follow is: if there's a suspicion, if the patient suspects there's something going on, rather biopsy than don't biopsy, and then you won't get caught with this particular type of situation, where you have to destroy somebody's good looks and uh, his view, his view of himself. Uh, so with MAC, with basal cell carcinomas, especially on the nose, they grow under the surface, they blend in with the dermis, uh, they grow in the dermis, and you just can't see them on the surface and you just s- think you have a pinpoint lesion or a needlehead lesion and you go in and you've got a f- one, two, three centimeter lesion. So in order to prevent that, always biopsy when there's a t- any suspicion of the skin cancer.
1: The other thing is some general pathologists sometimes will get uh, traqueathenioma is confused with the basal cell carcinoma, and I had one patient that had a large portion of her cheek excised. Uh, Uh, And um, uh, lo and behold, she had multiple other tricorepathy And so keep that in mind, too. Again, if the the biopsy doesn't really fit with you, uh, what you see clinically or what your gut feeling is about it, uh, question it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's what makes the job so interesting and so difficult. I mean, even with a simple basal cell, patients will say, well, how big do you think it's going to be? And it's like, well... I don't know. I mean, that's the honest answer. It could be small, it could be big. So it's, it's challenging, even for something that appears simple.
0: Great. I think, um, thank you to the great panelists. Um, I think we have a, to do the evaluation first yes. before we get to the questions.
3: The overall performance of the speaker. How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care?
0: Great. So the first question, um, how many or how much or how many days of amicomod prior to excision is, is recommended and, and then when do you restart after and how many days? Um, so I will never recommend amicomod prior to an excision. If I'm planning MOse, that inflammation can kind of really be challenging to kind of read um, and so I will never recommend amicomod pre moes or pre-surgery. I will have them start as soon as I feel like they're healed. So if they've had a linear repair, they're healed in a week, I will give them prescription at that suture removal and tell them to start almost three to five days later if they've healed well. If they had a graft or a flap, I may probably wait three weeks after surgery until I feel like the graft is fully taken or the flap is fully healed and, you know, any, any crust has kind of resolved. Anyone else from ben? Um How do you recommend biopsying large lentigo malignos? Dr. Seely? do you want to take that? given?
1: Well, you know, you you may want to to do um, uh, several biopsies on it, but uh, um, you can't rely just on on one punch biopsy to tell you how. So as as the speakers have mentioned, when when it is excised, then you're going to have to go ahead and uh, debulk it and resection it. Now, uh, the, the darker spot within it isn't necessarily the most reliable, and the lightest isn't either, so you're going to typically we need to do a, a couple of biopsies. You don't necessarily have to do a punch either, because these typically are a, a superficial lesion. You could get a good good feel for it that way.
0: Great. Um, <clears throat> can you explain debulking? Debulking, so Mar- Mohs surgery, again, is, is the examination of the peripheral margin and the deep margin, so that's what we care about. Debulking means taking the center or superficial component out and sending that to the main lab so they can bread loaf it and see if there's any melanoma going deeper. Mohs surgery, again, in modified Mohs even, um, if they're kind of doing on-foss margins, we're only checking the peripheral and deep margins kind of in the same snapshot. does a does mod change or improve possible recurrence rates? I, I don't think there's enough data or literature out there to kind of say one way or the other. We feel, I, I advocate for it because I feel that it does help. Um, Dr. Seely, when placing the porcine graft, do you still do two millimeter punches on, on the cartilage, cartilage or through the cartilage?
1: No, I don't do that anymore. I don't have to do that. That was an advantage. I used to take uh, tiny little two millimeter punches so I could get granulations coming through the posterior aspect. Uh, so I really haven't had to do that since then.
0: Um, how do you differentiate um, lento-maligna from lento-maligna melanoma? Again, lento-maligna <coughs> melanoma means there's some invasive component of melanoma extending beyond the epidermis and kind of extending into the papillary dermis um, to, to deeper dermis, potentially. So maligna is, is another name for MMIS, or melanoma that's confined to the top layer of the epidermis of the skin. Lenticomaligna melanoma is, there is an invasive component of melanoma in a setting of conic, uh, con, um, chronically sun-damaged skin, essentially. Chrissy, can you discuss your role in MOS in your clinic?
2: Um, yeah, I've been during PA for 21 years, so as you get older, you get to do more. So I do um, a lot of the repairs, flaps, grafts, linear closures. I do a ton of biopsies because we have to farm for our surgeons, so they don't want to do all the skin checks. And we have to follow a lot of these patients. I mean, the ones that have one skin cancer are going to have more, so I do a lot of post-op and then also post uh, mos follow-up as far as that goes. But I do a lot of suturing, too, which I enjoy. I like that.
0: Dr. Goldberg, can you, how deep do you take your split and graft with a blue blade, and uh, what part of the scalp are you taking it from?
3: So that's two questions. The first question is how deep do I take the graft? I take the graft as thin as I possibly can. I just want to get epidermis and the smallest amount of epidermis, so as thin as you possibly can. And what part of the scalp? It's the hair-bearing area of the scalp that's low down. It's usually behind the ear where the patient can't see it, and there's no uh, cosmetic significance at all and always from hair bearing skin so that the roots of the follicles can repopulate that area with epidermal cells.
0: Great, thank you so much again to the panelists for bringing some great cases and great advice um, and recommendations, and thank you all All for your attention. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.